If you were asked to trace all of your problems and troubles back to only two things, what would they be? My guess that eventually you'd arrive at people and money. For isn't it true that the vast majority of our problems stem from personal relationships and financial concerns? Even health problems are complicated if, if not actually caused by relationships and finances. So if most, if not all of our problems can be reduced to two things, people and money, you'd think we'd be able to get a handle on them. And we can if we're walking in the Spirit. And Paul wants to make sure we know how to do that. After showing us what a Spirit-filled life looks like, he goes on to show how that Spirit-filled life is to affect our personal relationships and, believe it or not, our finances. So today we're going to look at personal relationships, and next week we'll look at the proper use of money. Now Paul introduces this matter of personal relationships with a very straightforward statement that contains the key to establishing good relationships. We find it in Galatians 5, 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The key to establishing good relationships is keeping self in a proper perspective. And Paul zeroes in on that with the words, let us not become boastful. The King James Version translates it, let us not be desirous of vain glory, empty glory, glory that's really not ours. The Revised Standard Version puts it, let us have no self-conceit. Well, what does this have to do with personal relationships? Quite simply this, our conduct toward others is determined by our opinion of ourself. If we have self-conceit, we challenge and envy one another. That's why Paul ties them together here. If we think we're better than others, we'll have to prove it. We'll have to be the fastest gun in the West or at the shooting range. When we think we're the best, we challenge, we provoke, we compete. And that's obviously no way to build good relationships. Neither will we build good relationships if we're envious of others and even though we might not think self-conceit would lead to envy, it does. If we think we are more deserving than someone else, we'll envy them. We should have whatever it is they have that we think we should have. And what kind of relationships are we going to build with someone if we turn green with envy whenever we're around them? Also, in a bit surprising, perhaps, the same problems arise at the other end of the spectrum. An unrealistically low opinion of self can lead to conflict and envy. 
If we don't think we measure up to most, we will find some against whom we do. We'll gravitate toward those who by comparison do make us look good and then compete with them on their level, envying them for what they have and resenting them if even they have more than we do. So either way, with an exalted or diminished view of self, we'll be in trouble. We're not going to build good relationships until we see ourselves properly. And how should we see ourselves? Quite simply as undeserving recipients of grace. We're all in the same boat. We are all dependent on God. And ultimately, everything we've accumulated or accomplished is a gift from God. Life itself is a gift. And whatever we have or have become would not have been possible without his providence and grace. You know, we may have made some good choices and done some things that proved to be to our benefit, but even the ability to make good decisions is a gift. And nothing... Nothing is completely under our control. Everything can be taken away in a moment. So we really have nothing to brag about and nothing to prove. And if we honestly believe we deserve nothing we've been given, we'll not feel slighted when God gives something to someone else. We will just thank him and be grateful for what he's given to us. If we'll get a proper perspective on self, we'll avoid the vast majority of conflicts that cause problems in personal relationships. One word of caution, however. The goal is not simple avoidance of conflict. We can avoid conflicts by avoiding relationships. You know, we can get along with everyone by doing nothing with or for anyone. Obviously, that's not what Paul is encouraging us to do here. He wants us to build good relationships and to put those relationships to good use, to utilize them for God's glory. He continues into the sixth chapter. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. To be in a relationship, you have to be involved with others. There's no relationship in isolation. And the purpose of the church is to bring people into relationship with their creator and with each other. You know, church is not intended to be a personal experience. It's an interpersonal experience. The law of Christ is that we love one another as he has loved us, that we care for one another, and that we depend on one another. We are all members of the same body, and as such, Paul says if one member suffers, all the members suffer. 
And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice. That's why we share with each other our needs and our joys. That's why we pray for one another. And that's why we get involved in each other's lives, even if it makes us uncomfortable. And the example Paul gives does make most of us uncomfortable. He says, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. This is directed to all who are in Christ, who are spiritual, walking in the spirit in whom the fruit of the spirit is being produced. We not only have to get involved in each other's lives, we've got to intervene when someone is caught in a trespass. Now, that can mean a couple things. That can mean sin caught them or that we caught them in it. But either way, if we see a brother fall into sin, we've got to do something. Now, the word for trespass does indicate a slip-up, a fall. It's an unintentional wandering into sin, like wandering into someone's field and not seeing the no trespassing sign. It doesn't really speak of rebellious, defiant sin. There may be nothing we can do in that situation. But if a brother falls, we're to do everything we can to help him get up again, to restore him, to repair him. The word was often used medically of setting a broken bone. And with that picture in mind, Paul adds, do it in a spirit of gentleness. You don't want someone being any rougher than they need to be when setting a bone. We've seen that on TV, especially the old westerns. The doctor comes in and the leg's like this and he yanks on it. Sometimes it's hard to set a bone, I assume. But you still want someone to be gentle. You want him to do what has to be done, but you want him to do it gently and carefully. And that's the way we're to handle our brothers and sisters when they're in need of help. That's especially true when dealing with a spiritual problem. Then notice that Paul gives a warning to the one seeking to restore the fallen brother. He says, look to yourself lest you be tempted. Now, I don't think he's talking about our being tempted by the sin that ensnared our brother. He's still talking about the way we handle the situation. We must be careful that we don't come into the situation with a holier-than-thou attitude, that we start thinking we're better than they are because we're not the one caught in sin. We start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think we find ourselves being filled with spiritual pride. If that were to happen, relationships would be destroyed and we'd soon be back into challenging or envying one another. To keep that from happening, we've got to make certain we're thinking of others and not ourselves, even while helping someone. We've got to keep our motives pure as we seek to bear one another's burden. We don't do for others so we'll feel good about ourselves. 
or to establish ourselves in a circle of friends in the church. We don't bear one another's burdens for our own benefit. We utilize the relationships we've established in the church to build up the body of Christ, not so we can build up ourselves. A proper evaluation of self is the key here. It's the key to establishing good relationships, to utilizing good relationships, and to maintaining good relationships. Verses 3 through 5. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now, some relationships are going to fall apart in spite of our best efforts. Some people are going to be competing with us and envying us, even if we aren't competing with them. Most relationships can be maintained if we keep self in check. Paul says if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, and apart from Christ we are all nothing, he deceives himself. And if we're living in a fantasy world with exaggerated views of self, it's inevitable that we'll destroy any relationships that have been established. So how do we avoid thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think? Quite simply, we stop comparing. The quickest way to destroy a relationship is through comparisons. That's why Paul says, let each one examine his own work. We're not to examine someone else's work. Because when we examine their work, we will inevitably compare it with our own. Now that's true of comparable works in general. And it's true when comparing what someone is putting into a relationship. It's so easy to start thinking, I'm putting more into this relationship than he is. I'm trying harder than she is. I'm giving in more often than he does. When we start comparing contributions in a relationship, we're in trouble. Because we'll always convince ourselves that we're putting in more than our fair share. But how do you really know what someone else is putting into a relationship? How do you know how hard they're trying? Maybe they are giving all they've got. It's not our place to judge our brother's efforts or his motives. We're simply to judge ourselves in this matter. We're to make certain that we are doing all we can to establish good relationships in the body and that we are utilizing them to build up the body, that we are carrying whatever load we must to keep relationships in the body healthy. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 5 when he says, for each one shall bear his own load. Now, 
I realize that sounds like a contradiction of what he just said back in verse 2. And that's especially true if we're reading it from the King James Version, where verse 2 reads, Bear ye one another's burdens, and then verse 5 reads, For every man shall bear his own burden. Sounds confusing and contradictory. But there's no contradiction in the original language. In verse 2, Paul is talking about an overwhelming weight. A burden that a man cannot bear by himself. Something he needs help with. In verse 5, the word he used was of the load found in a backpack. Something a man can and must bear by himself. Now that backpack may be heavy. I had to take books home to uh, Ann and Carter this week. I can't believe they carry around those books all week long. A backpack can be heavy, but it's something we can't handle. We can't handle. There's a time when we must accept our responsibility, and I think that's what Paul is, is pointing out here. Personal responsibility and individual accountability before God. Paul is saying that God will hold every man accountable for what he does. And that must be our only concern when it comes to personal relationships. What are we doing? Besides, we can't control what others do anyway. All we can do is control what we do. You know, how often do we hear our kids say, he made me do it, or she made me do it? How often do we think that? That's not true. That's not true. No one made you do anything. You did it. So accept the responsibility. Don't worry about what someone else is doing. Worry about what you're doing. Don't worry about controlling someone else. Worry about controlling yourself through the power of the Spirit of God. We'll be judged on the basis of what we do and how we allow the Spirit to work in our life. And we can work to establish good relationships in the church. We can make the effort to get to know our brothers and sisters and become involved in one another's lives. It's important that you know each other. That's what it means to be in fellowship and to be a body. We can then utilize those relationships for the building up of the body. We can minister to one another and be there during the bad times as well as the good times. And we can maintain good relationships with each other by making certain that we are walking by the Spirit, that we are keeping the deeds of the flesh in check, and cultivating the garden in which the fruit of the Spirit can flourish. Where do we begin with that? We begin building good relationships with one another in the church by becoming good friends with Jesus. 
He's the one who brings us together. If you're struggling with someone, focus on the relationship you have with Jesus. Make sure that relationship is right. And if your relationship with Jesus is what, it's ought, what it ought to be, you'll become not only his friend, but you become friends with each other. My dad used to say, shun evil companions. I don't know where that came from, but I've heard it a thousand times. And there's some truth to that. There's some warning in that. But more importantly is make the right friends. And the first friend we need to make is the one who loves us enough to die for us. What a friend we have in Jesus. If we embrace that, we can be friends with everyone else who loves him. And perhaps even those who don't. Let's strive to build good relationships by having the best friend possible, the Son of God. What a friend.